It's Mike Traverso with the Friends That Code podcast, where I get a chance to showcase some amazing people I know that just happen to write code for a living. Folks, today I have the pleasure of speaking with someone that has leveled up from the software development game and now focuses his time and energy on agile software project management. Today's guest has actually played a role in making America safer. Is he a superhero? Kind of. You see, while today's guest served in the Navy, he taught himself GW Basic. Armed with nothing else but a Wang word processor, the programmer's manual, and some spare time, he taught himself how to code while serving. Some of his work has gone on to automate logistics that has improved squadron readiness before the end of the Cold War happened. Now, for those of you who don't know what the Cold War was or why squadron readiness is important, you're going to have to watch Top Gun because it was incredibly important. That's why we get to the hero part. All right, today's guest moved on from GW Basic and tape-based OS computers of the Navy and into object-oriented programming languages writing code for financial asset management firms like JP Morgan. He transitioned into more management-related roles, earning himself numerous certifications in all aspects of agile project management. And that's where he finds himself today, running his own consultant and management services business. Today's guest is able to teach and help his clients practice lean agile principles and keep their Scrum, Kanban, and scaled agile framework initiatives on track and productive. One last thing I want to mention before I introduce today's guest to you. Today's guest is the kind of person doesn't just click a like button on your status update. He's the guy who leaves an encouraging comment. And that was something I wanted to mention because I just like to celebrate thoughtfulness. And I just think that's just amazing. Developer, Navy veteran, Kanban cool guy, scrum master, master, agile guru, and entrepreneur. Ladies and gentlemen, today's guest is Tony Amos. Tony, thank you for joining us today. How are you doing? I'm doing just fine, Mike. How are you? Thank you. Uh, and thank you for having me. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. Um, you know, so Tony, you and I know each other through a mutual friend. Um, and I, I had reached out to that friend because I, I want, was trying to get him on the podcast. Um, and, you know, when I finished explaining to him what the podcast was and what the show was about, you know, he was like, hey, you should talk to Tony Amos. And I, I just thought that was pretty cool. So that's how we ended up reaching out and getting together and, and being able to talk today. So I, I, again, just thought that was really cool. Well, I'm, I'm glad, I'm glad he did that. I'm, um, yeah, we had been talking about a few things. So I, so I think recently, uh, he, you know, I came to, maybe I came to mind at the time that you spoke to him, but I'm glad he did. And I have thanked him for it and, uh, yep, looking forward to our discussion. Excellent. Excellent. So, so Tony, I mean, you studied management and, and finance at Rutgers. Um, you've earned you know, financial analysis and financial modeling certifications. Uh, you have a background in application development and DevOps, more than half a dozen certificates of, sorry, half a dozen certifications in all aspects of project management. I mean, that, you strike me as a renaissance man. And, and you found a really cool way to tie all of those skills together uh, with your business in, in the Anthony Software Group. I want to explain what it is, but I think it's always better. And, you know, it's not the, for a lack of research, but I want always to have the guests to be able to explain what their business is, because I think they can do it more justice than I possibly could. So could you explain what your what your company is able to do for your clients? Sure. Uh, what, what we do is uh, pr my primary focus is helping uh, people, in, whether it's individuals, teams, or companies, to get to a place where they can be as productive as they can when it comes to software development. So my passion has been to combine my uh, knowledge of how to, uh, from programming to administration to project management, and combine that business knowledge in a way that helps software projects become more successful. So what I do is help uh, individuals. I, I will coach individuals. I teach classes. And I engage with companies who may either be forming a team or already have a team. And I help them to get those teams up and running by doing more than, say, sending a person to training and then saying, OK, you're a scrum master. Now go do, your, now go do what scrum masters do. Uh, I'm the person who will come in and 
show you how things should work within your environment, within your within the context of what you're trying to do, and then lead people to the point where they can they can function independently and not feel like they're learning as learning so much as they go. Very cool. Uh, you know, it's funny that you mentioned Scrum Master Training because someone sent me to Scrum Master Training once and I did it, came back and we never used it. Um, so, but, but I want to, I want to. It does happen frequently. Yeah. And yeah, for me though, it was, it was more of a, we need to use a training budget. And I saw this, I, I wanted to learn agile and there was a class going on in Florida in February. And I was like, oh, from New York, I'm definitely heading down there in February. <laughs> So, uh, but it, it, it's just, a, I love doing, you know, project running projects with an agile methodology than the waterfall like leaps and bounds way better. Um, where do you typically start when you have a potential client? Where do you start with them? Well, I have, uh, I have some clients who I coach, uh, or, and I also have training companies as clients where I, where I'll deliver a class for them. Uh, those are a simpler way to start because we'll just come up with, a plan, like what do you want to accomplish? And then a strategy, you know, put our plan together and then implement it. Within a bigger organization, there may be uh, a need to fulfill or enhance how company or, or how the team is working. Mm -hmm. Maybe they don't, maybe they, they lost a scrum master and they need to fill, fill in a gap. Uh, maybe they lost a product owner or uh, they need to shift people around. Uh, or they've got a team that's just up and running. Then I'll look at, I'll learn what's happening within the organization first and then put a plan together. And in those cases, I'll usually integrate with what they've already got, but I'll bring a different perspective when it comes to how to implement your the agile. You know, so you're not just kind of sitting there like, okay, we've been trained, what do we do next? Or okay, this other person did the job before and now they're not there. What do we do now? So right. I, I help to fill those gaps. Right. And so you're not selling one, like a one, here's one solution to everything. It does, it's, it's, it's more, everything's custom fit for your clients. You know, depending on what they need, you can fill that need, um, whether it's. That, yeah, or... that's what I, that's what I try to focus on. You know, the okay. reason I have the different certifications uh, that I have is because I, I think, uh, particularly when it comes to my coaching practice, right. I get, or I can deliver a lot more uh, value to my clients when I have access or understanding of different agile implementations. So oh, sure. while some shops may say, okay, we do Scrum, we only, you know, we, we just need to implement Scrum properly. Well, there are some aspects of Kanban that can enhance Scrum. And um, I can help with that. So if I come with, with one thing, then that, that can get you so far. But the fact that I combine different approaches, um, you know, including the safe method, yep. then, I can, uh, then I can deliver a more complete solution. By the way, in, in researching for the podcast, I was once a certified Scrum Master. Mm -hmm. I knew all about Kanban. Okay. But when I heard about what safe was, like just blew my mind. Well, we, we could talk about that later, Sure. Um, but I, I want to ask, what's the most challenging bit about creating a new business, especially with, you know, software related? Uh, I think the most challenge, the most challenging part is staying focused on a few things. Uh, there are, especially when I'm pretty confident that I can do a lot of things. I know that that's not the best use of my time. So I think the most challenging, well, in my experience, the most challenging part of starting a new business is to not spread my thin, myself too thin, okay. to make sure that I'm available for my clients as they need me, that I don't take on more than I need to, and to make sure that I'm available for myself and my family as well. Uh, because I didn't do this to work 18-hour days you know, to get things up and running and then um, hopefully change one day. So striking that striking and keeping that balance is the hardest thing for me right now very important very important and if i have to ask well what are some of the things because everybody that starts a business there's always that there's always a few things that they're like if i'm doing this again i'm definitely not making these mistakes i i've got them mm -hmm. <laughs> um what what are some of the things that if you're starting another business you're not making that mistake again 
Well, I've in starting this business, I've I've applied lessons that I've learned from prior businesses. Oh sure. Uh, the, the the I'll I'll say I got lucky. The very first business I ever started, it was a training company in Wilmington, Delaware, that I ended up selling to uh, um, to another company and then joining that company. That went surprisingly smoothly just because I was, I think I was in the right place at the right time, teaching the right subjects and had the, you know, everything just kind of came together. And that kind of put things in my, that kind of set my expectation as, ah, this is easy. I should do this all the time. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and I've had a couple of really challenging ones that, that followed after that. And that's where, where my learning came in. Uh, okay. You know, some of the, the, the mistakes that I would not make again are, one, uh, this goes back to uh, the hardest thing of all, taking on too much. Uh, there are lots of times where I'll hear a good business idea or I'll hear uh, something that, yeah, this, this is something that I could do. But I have to ask myself all the time, uh, you know, should I do that right now? Uh, the other thing that, that I've learned from a prior partnership going back several years is um, get everything in writing. <laughs> Uh, that that was a partnership that didn't work, and um, there were quite a few things that, uh, quite a bit of it was in writing, but there were other things that were not in writing, and I kind of just kind of just let them go because I was really comfortable with the person that I was partnering with. And then when things didn't go so well, it, it became really problematic because there wasn't a set way to solve problems. And to Tony's point, if you're starting a business, get everything in writing everything regardless of who you're dealing with <laughs> yeah especially if you're dealing with a friend yes because then then things can sour and it's always nice to have that framework of of having things written in you know written down and agreed to that okay this is what's going to happen if these things happen right and it's it you, there's there's you don't ruin a friendship everything is nice and black and white on the paper signed and agreed to yeah and, and that's point. what I've done with my current, with the current partnership that, that I'm in now. And he fully understood that, uh, you know, it, it wasn't like, oh, you know, why can't we just do it on a handshake, you know, or something <laughs> like that. Uh, you know, we both did it. But and the, the benefit to writing it down for me is that it forces me to think through everything that could go wrong. Because when we're just getting started, it looks so idyllic. Everything's going to go perfectly. And in a few years, we're going to be kicking back on the beach, drink, sipping margaritas, right? right? Well, what happens if that doesn't happen? Yeah. So getting it in writing forces me to think everything through. It's great advice. Great advice. The fact that you've got the background in software development, you've got this entrepreneurial spirit, and then you also have all the background that you have in project management, product management. Mm -hmm. I, that's, I think that you know, for, for anyone to be able to speak to that, you are the guy, you, you are the resource. So I think that the next re the next venture that you start up, I, I'd love to have you come back and tell me how successful that's going to be. Um, I, I would very because, much love to do that. Yeah. Just hearing everything about what you've been doing. I, I can't see how that um, won't be a, a big success. So first of well, all, good luck. Thank and, you. and, you know, I know you've got a long road ahead, but still, it just, it sounds like you've got all the background for it. So. Yeah. Well, um, one thing that, that I, that I will put in, throw in there is that sure. having this background helps me to appreciate what goes into each aspect of the job. So where, even if I could physically do it, a lot of times I just shouldn't or couldn't. Right. Uh, but what it does mean is that I also have relationships with people who can help. And I recognize that I can bring the right help in at the right time. And I know who to look for and how to find that help. Yeah. I mean, and that's important, you know, understanding not just, you know, what you, your, your limitations, but and I, you know, from, from your perspective, you could do it, but from a limitation perspective of time, like you just, you don't want to. And, right. And, and it's, it makes so much more sense. Just bring somebody else in and let their expertise in and, and, a lot of people don't realize this when they're doing these startups and it's like, Oh, that we just want a few people and we're going to just make the next Facebook right here in this room. The more people you have, you know, people talk about AI all the time. Well, the more people you have in a room or on a project or, or working on something that's, that's biological neural networking right, right there. 
So you don't, you don't necessarily have to implement AI if you've got another human being that can that can work these problems through. Um, and and another thing you mentioned too, Tony, was like learning when to say no, and then just I guess graciously saying no to something, to an opportunity, to whatever it whatever it is, so that you can kind of again manage your own expectations, manage your time. That's that's very that's a very important skill that I think a lot of people don't learn unless it's learned through experience. Right. And that's how I learned it. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's not just saying no, it's, it's how you say no, because oh, sure. asking they have a need. Um, I tend to where I can, I want to be helpful and, uh, but how I deliver that help matters. Yeah. And, and sometimes it's not that sometimes it's not me that's physically delivering the help but I can help get the right person in place to do it. And, I, and I've done that just so often that it's almost second nature now. Right. You know, speaking of bringing on other people, what's, what's a question that you ask, you know, to, it's kind of, cause you have to vet folks, yes. you know, especially when you're looking for people to help out. What's one question you ask every person that works with you? Yeah. Basically when I'm screening or vetting or, or um, interviewing a person for a job, uh, I'll go through some fundamental questions just to establish that they've got uh, you know, the skill set and the sure. knowledge and understanding that I'm looking for. And then I'll come with a question and every person I've interviewed, and it's been scores of people, every person that I've interviewed in the last 10 years has heard this question from me. What is your passion? Describe to me what it means to you. Wow. Now, that passion doesn't have to be technology. Um, I've had people describe their passion for the guitar. I've heard someone describe, uh, describe his passion for surfing. Uh, so um, I, I just strongly believe that uh, people with a passion tend to be very, tend to be motivated in a variety of ways. And if the passion isn't there or you don't have something that you say, yeah, this is something I really believe in, uh, then th then I, I think that that person just still has some exploring and understanding to, to get done. That's I mean, that's an excellent question, I think. And you're getting some vulnerabilities out of a person. Sure. Right? Because to share a passion, that's 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 something people keep close to their heart. It's you're exposing a little bit of that, seeing how much of that they'll share with you. I think that that's it's just a that's a really good question to ask. Uh, so if you're ever going to be working for Tony, um, <laughs> make sure you know the answer to that question. That's a, that's <laughs> a little a, bit of a cheat sheet. I don't I don't mind if people know the question <laughs> in advance because you know either because it's an if you really do have a passion, it's yeah. a no brainer to answer that question, right. and and that's what I look for. Awesome. I want to kind of talk about a little bit of the DevOps stuff that you do. And this is not a trick question. This is the, this is the most technical question I think I'm going to ask um, this month. Uh, but if you're stuck on an island, right? You're stuck on an island. You can only have one DevOps instance. You know, one, one, one bit of software that runs your, some of your DevOps stuff that handles your continuous integration and your continuous development. What would it be? Is it Azure DevOps, Jenkins, Team City, um, and the reason I'm asking this is because I saw that you've worked with Azure before. I, I know you've worked with Jenkins, uh, and I know you've worked with Team City. And I I do this as part of my job as a software developer. And one of these makes me incredibly sad on a regular basis. <laughs> so I won't um, attempt I, to guess which one, but I think I know which one. <laughs> okay. So which one would you pick? So I would answer none of the above. Oh. Uh, the one that I would, if I'm on a desert island and I need a DevOps, uh, just one DevOps platform. Which you would I never would need. Use, sure. <laughs> actually, I would use that Lazyens Bitbucket. Oh, okay. Um, I've become a big fan since they've, um, because Bitbucket has source control yep. and they've added the pipeline to it. So it's oh, all okay. in one, one platform. So I can compile if I need to, I can run unit tests, I can do quality checks, I can run my build, I can build my database, I can run any script I want. So beyond source control, it's, it, it includes the uh, pipeline 
approach that I, you know, and it's all cloud-based. So that's what I would go with. Okay, perfect. I, I, I use uh, source tree for my okay. source control. Yep. Uh, I would love to get more into some of the Atlassian products. Um, but uh, we're, we're, I'm going to take a look at that. We're going to see. Um, which was the one of the three that I mentioned that you think drives me, what makes me the saddest? Probably Jenkins. Ah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've, done, I've, I've worked with Jenkins and I don't, uh, I, I really don't dislike it. Uh, it's, it's in broad use. It's got a lot of power. Uh, it, it can accomplish a lot. Uh, but I think when I'm using it in the, uh, actually Jenkins was the, no, it was actually the second DevOps platform that I, that I ever used. Uh, but there's enough to it where I can get anything that I want done. But when I compare it to other platforms like Team City, uh, oh, yeah. Bucket Pipelines, they are just easier and more flexible to work with. Yeah, D Jenkins gives you a lot of room to shoot yourself in the foot. Yeah, and and extra bullets. <laughs> All right. Okay, well, I want to move on. Like I said, that was the most technical question I was going to ask. Um, so one of the things I came across, um, Tony, you know, while I was researching you, was that you wrote an article a few months ago. Uh, it was in it was titled "Memo to the Lone Black Engineer." So I want to get a little heavy, a little bit more serious for a bit, if you don't mind. Not at all. Okay. First of all, I think a lot more people, I think everybody should read the article that you wrote and especially not just your article, but the article that inspired it, which is um, titled, I feel like I was accidentally hired by Ibrahim Diallo. Um, so reading the inspired article, the, the article that inspired yours, it, it was quite sad, but at the end of it, it was very hopeful. And I want to quote Mr. Diallo for a second. It says, his article closes with, the computer doesn't care about the color of your skin cares about the group you belong to. And one of the things that I've always said on the podcast is that as software developers, we're all part of this one big wacky tribe. You know, we're all kind of super excited that our code worked and then super sad that it didn't work. Um, and it's, we're all, we're all trying to help each other. I mean, that's the whole point of the open source community, but getting back to your article, your, it, your article acknowledges a lot of the negative experiences that Mr. Diallo had with how people in technology and venture capital saw him as a black man. But you also talk about your own experiences. What inspired you to write your article in response? Actually, my wife, uh, who's an avid reader of BBC News, uh, came across that article one Saturday morning, and she just knew that I would be interested in it. So she forwarded me a link to it. Uh, it was, I was sleeping in that Saturday morning. So, you know, she's up reading the news and I'm looking, but I, it's like, what is this that she, she texted me when I wake up, uh, and I read the article and I just like, I, I felt immediately like, wow, I, I do understand what he describes and how he under, and what his experience was. At the same time, when I think back on my own experience, that uh, you know, my experience—I've had quite a few very different experiences. You know, being a black software engineer is a rarity. Um, I'm I'm just used to it in my career. Um, there are many times where um, I've been in large companies where I'm the only black person on the floor. You know, then there can be 300 people on the floor. Um, I'm one of very few people um, in the, or I'll go, for example, I'll go to a conference and there are, you know, very few uh, black people there. And uh, so, you know, we are, we're conspicuous in our absence. And one thing that, that's been a big motivator for me is trying to encourage uh, not just uh, black people, but uh, Latino people, uh, especially women, people with different perspectives to get into software engineering. And for me, that comes down to uh, perspective. Yeah. Uh, just that uh, software is a reflection of the people who build it. And software is supposed to integrate with life in order to solve a problem. But if the people writing the software don't have the life experience that they're trying to solve, 
then it leaves something lacking in the software. So that's something my, my wife and my kids and I have discussed many times over the years. So she knew that I would like latch right onto this article. Uh, we talked about it. I talked about it. My, both of my kids are adults, uh, but I happened to mention it to, to both of them. And you know, after talking about it for a couple of hours, I just felt, mo I sat down and just, just started writing. And that was, this was a Saturday afternoon, and then I edited it and ran it by, you know, my wife and a couple of friends of mine and my kids and got their input. And I was done editing by Saturday night. I think I popped on Sunday night. I think I just just put it out on uh, my Medium account either Sunday night or Monday morning. And I'll see what happens. Just kind of see what happens. But I also reached out to Mr. Diallo. I had to do a little searching because all I had was his name. And I, I found his email address, so I forwarded it to him. And um, I was actually a bit anxious, <laughs> you know, waiting for his response. I uh, didn't know, you know, just not knowing him, not knowing what to expect. And um, uh, Monday, sometime it was later in the day, I got an email and I was actually feeling anxious about opening it. So I opened it, uh, read it. He it, it was well received. Told me how much he appreciated it. How we've had different experiences, and uh, he found it encouraging. And so that that was satisfying. And then uh, after that, I I also got a lot of positive feedback from other uh, people who've read it and good comments on it. Uh, the uh, but the the biggest thing that I wanted to convey to um, people who are not normally or not traditionally motivated towards going into uh, programming in general or software engineering in general, much less into technology, is I wanted them to understand or at least uh, be willing to consider it. Uh, this is a field, we need diversity of input. Uh, we see things in software and how software works that we, when we get it to market, we say, you know, it, it doesn't make sense for some reason. Um, I'll be the biggest critic of my own software, so I'll, and I'll, I will criticize other software as well when they, when they omit something that's critically important. Uh, even companies as large as Apple have done it, you know, based on their engineers, that where uh, the, the fact that at least when uh, a lot, when Siri was being designed, it's readily apparent that there weren't very many women on that design team. There weren't very many women involved in designing the, um, the, the, the voice response because there are, some, there, there are some statements that you could make to Siri that would be very important for a woman, but Siri wouldn't understand. Now, they've worked okay. hard to resolve those things, and they have resolved it now. But I think if there are more people of a variety of diverse backgrounds involved in the design and architecture of software, then we get more complete solutions sooner, as opposed to responding to the fact that there's a problem. Absolutely. And especially in an industry where everybody's talking about machine learning. Yes. Having an additional biological neural network to, to attach to a problem. Absolutely. And that, and that even the machine learning learns within the context with which you teach it. Oh, yeah. So if it's only taught by people with a certain life experience, then that's what that that's what will be reflected in the machine learning. Right. But if you're getting input from people with a variety of life experiences, you get a more complete, much more intelligent response. Right. Yeah. And, you know, it's to their organizations out there like uh, Technovation, um, Black Girls Who Code. Yes, um, one of my favorite. Yep, uh, Black Orlando Tech, which is not local to Tampa, obviously, but it's it's a great organization. They, they. Oh man, I, I interviewed Janelle Pizarro a few weeks ago, and the what they do is they have these cohorts, these these teaching courses, right? And you pay a certain amount of money to learn some aspect of development. And when you're done, you're given your money back if you've completed the course. And I, when I heard that, it just like, I was like, wow. Cause I mean, there's, it literally takes away the barrier of entry. Yeah. But then it says, oh, okay. If you finish, which is what we want you to do, we'll give you your money back. Yeah. It pushes a level of commitment. I think it's exactly. fantastic approach. Yep. Um, but one of your experiences that you wrote about in the article 
well, you struggled with a bit of imposter syndrome one day in your naval career. You mentioned that you had the help of a billowing commander that day. Um, just, just for folks out there, because I want them to know. I mean, I, I've read the article, so I know what he said. But what did that commander say to you that day? Because I think it, if everybody can kind of keep this in the back of their mind, it really will help you deal with any imposter syndrome feelings you're having. Uh, yeah, what he said was a, he made a very simple statement that was probably one of the more powerful statements I've ever heard in my life. You can do this. Yeah. That was, that was what he said, because if you read the article, you'll see, you'll get the entire story, but in a nutshell, um, it was very obvious, painfully obvious that I was incredibly nervous doing a presentation on some software that I had written while in the Navy. And um, I was the only black person in the room and I was the only junior enlisted person in the room. And um, so I felt quite intimidated and I was just, I was just so painfully nervous, uh, stumbling over my own words, uh, stumbling over uh, things that were just like really simple and obvious. And the commander, his Navy commander, just stopped me for a second, just said, close your eyes, take a deep breath, now let it out. You can do this. And right. but he said it, I, he didn't say it the way I just said it. He yeah, said yeah, it but... in correct order. So I didn't have an option not to. <laughs> and that's, that's really cool, though. But I think having folks listen to that, you know, listen, Close your eyes, take a deep breath. You can do this. One of the things that I found with software development, and I know everybody has different experiences, is that it is a community that tries to help people. It is. I mean, you wouldn't, there's a, there's a site called stackoverflow.com, yep. which is completely dedicated to helping people with problems. You have open source software communities where you can go ahead and you know publish your own software and give it a license for everybody to use. So I, it, we are dealing with a community that is trying to progress everyone forward. And I think what we need to do is really get everybody into the community so that way we can continue progressing everyone forward. So like I said, there, there's a lot of groups out there that do this, that really try to attract people of you know, Latinx, women, and Black people into software development. And it's, I think that there's a lot more work to be done, but it's promising seeing what is being done today. It, it, it is very much so. And um, one thing I, I've shared with people uh, is that uh, provide, I, I put one condition on this is that if this is something that you are serious about, for example, you like compare it to wanting to be an artist or a musician, uh, if this is something, or a writer, if this is something that you really feel motivated to do, then once you learn it, no one can ever take it from you. Just like as a writer or an artist, uh, for very often we hear that even if there's, even if I did want to do this, no one's going to give me a job. Well, you know how many software people created their own jobs? Yeah. You know, this is just like a writer who published a book or an artist who published a, a fantastic piece of work. Uh, it's something that that just if, if this is what you're motivated to do, it's inside you. And there's nothing society or culture can do to ever take that away from you short of lobotomize you. You know, it's <laughs> about the only way. <laughs> right. And there's not too much of that going around. Yeah. Today, and and so. people tend to frown on that. So, <laughs> well, but, but one of the things you mentioned though is like, well, I won't get a job after. And I think a little bit, a little bit of that, I can understand why someone would say that. But it's a little bit short sighted in that there are so many jobs available in the field. And like you said, if you don't find the job you want or the job you want isn't finding you, you can create your own. Um, there's so, I mean, there, in terms of software development, there's tons of opportunity out there. And, and I think, I hope, I hope, I don't think, I hope that things are changing and that we are going to see a more diverse work group in the future. Right? I, I, it, I have I a see, lot of faith in that. Yeah. Cause I'm starting to see the pipelines, like where people are entering into the pipeline to become yeah. software developers. So I don't think it's going to happen right now, obviously, cause it's 
you know, it's a skill. You have to learn it. So it'll, it'll happen, but, but it is exactly. happening. Yes. And that's, that's inspiring. Uh, and, and one of the other things you mentioned in your article is that you've volunteered and spoken to student groups in the community. Um, you've tried to increase the number of women and, and like you said, uh, women and black and Latinx people in software development. Um, I, I myself have been a conference organizer and a tech meetup organizer. What assistance is there that I could offer to help, you know, young potential uh, black software engineers get past that initial lack of diversity? You know, because computer programming is hard enough and it's, it's, I imagine it's got to be even harder still if you feel like you have to learn it all by yourself alone. So are there things that, I mean, that I could do to help other than, you know, make donations to some of these amazing uh, software development groups? Like I said, Black Girls Who Code, uh, Black Orlando Tech, Technovations. There, is there something else that I can do or be aware about? Like if I, for example, if I was, if I was, meeting you right when you're getting that manual for the GW basic on that Wang process, word processor, what would you have like someone to say to you to kind of help inspire you along the way? That, that's a, that's a tough question. What would I have wanted uh, someone to say to me? Uh, I think that, um, I think, I, I think that people it just in general, it's just my, my perception is that, um, people tend to gravitate people to people with whom they relate. Uh, so when they uh, see, it, it, I think more importantly than saying something, when um, you can see someone who is like you or someone you can relate to um, doing what you want to do, uh, I think that that creates an attraction. And the uh, to to see other people that um, are doing the same thing are it becomes important, which is why like I think most of the groups that that you've mentioned they form the equivalent of of clubs or cohorts or groups of people who are all attempting to do the same thing. Uh, that lets you you know it, it it helps to move you move the group through a pipeline, even if there's not 100% completion, you know, of every student or every person who's attempting it, they do that. You know, the, the fact that it's being done in a group helps it to move more effectively. Uh, what, one of the things that my wife has, has, has taught me, uh, my wife is a high school guidance counselor in New York City. Uh, she works in a really good school uh, where there are a lot of kids with with really good potential, and she would and she's she's been there for for a really long time now. But, but she tells me that you know when kids are getting ready to go to college, when they're considering what types of careers they want, they just start they just dismiss things because they think that it's not for them or it's too hard or they don't know anyone who does that or you know even if they like it sometimes. Oh. So she encouraged me, uh, her, her school has a career day. Uh, one year um, I said, okay, you know, she asked me if I would come in and speak to the kids. And um, it, it, they set up little tables. So it's not like an auditorium where you're talking to the entire class. They come around and they talk to people in different careers. And I hear the questions firsthand. Do I have to know a lot of math? Is it really hard? Uh, what else do I have to learn to do it? Oh, I've, I've played around with this. Is it like playing a video game? And some of these questions are really hard to answer, but important for people like me to hear and to attempt to answer. So that when I do answer them, they, they see that here's a person who is at a minimum, you know, the, the, the same, you know, um, ethnic background as they are, uh, even though they may not have known, may not have seen that before. And I've had the, the privilege last year, uh, not this past May, but, pay, but May of 2019, I was able to bring my son with me uh, because my son, is, my son is an attorney. So when the students see more people working, uh, you know, you're actually doing the job that they may think that they want to do and they have the opportunity to just talk to them one-on-one -on -one and just ask questions those types of things help people to be, to be able to see themselves in that role much better and makes it makes it a lot harder to dismiss it. I, I think that's that's a fantastic idea and we should have more of that. More more people going and giving those one not maybe not one-on-ones but just speaking to groups of high school kids. Yeah. To let them know. 
Yeah, actually, I think it would be, you know, just as we're talking about this just popped in my head. If there was a registry of people willing to appear at your school's career day. And then this way they, you know, make it easier for the schools to find people to, to uh, talk to the kids. That's a fantastic idea. Um, you know, showing kids that, Hey, there, here's people who are like you that can do this. But additionally, when you have meetup groups or you have conferences, you need to, if you're organizing it or you're, you're going through the speaker list, you need to understand, you need to have a diverse set of speakers or diverse speaker at your diverse speakers at your meetup group. And I think the reason is this will help, especially for a couple of reasons. One, if you're running a meetup group and you're always looking for speakers, always. So reaching out to people maybe that you wouldn't normally reach out to because maybe you don't know them because they're not in your you know, professional circle, mm-hmm. find those folks and get them in. And it'll help you because one, you'll be creating a diverse speaker group. But additionally, that week or that month, you won't have to put together a talk. Right. You know, especially if you're doing that, if you're, if you're organizing the group as for conference organizers, you know, that, that you really need to make sure that you have a diverse group because not just a group, a diverse group of speakers, but a diverse group in the audience. So again, reach out to folks who you normally wouldn't reach out to because maybe again, they're not in your professional circle, reach out to the groups that, you know, focus on this again, black girls who code yes, black Orlando tech. I can, I mean, there's probably tons of these that I don't know about, um, outside of the central I four corridor area, sure. but find them, reach out to them and get them in to talk about web development, talk about mobile development, whatever it is that you're running your conference on, reach out to them. Don't wait for someone to give you a paper, uh, sorry, a proposal to speak at your conference. Don't, don't do that. Don't tweet about here's our call for proposals. Mm-hmm. And then sit back and wait for all the people you know to submit talks. Go out and find the people that you need to speak. Right. So, right. Um, I mean, we, we that's something we we tried to do with the you know one of the conferences I ran a while a couple of years back, but and and we were I think we were pretty successful with it because we reached out to a lot of folks that I don't think would have known about it otherwise. Um, okay. Uh, yeah, and that's a great way to expand your audience because as you yeah. invite new people, you attract their circle as well. Exactly, exactly. And then again, it's if you're trying to get bigger numbers, bigger crowds, bigger conference, uh, you know, that's how you do it, folks. Right. <laughs> stop, <laughs> stop preaching to the people that are already there. Preach yeah. to the people that aren't. I think the, that a lot of attention has been paid to attracting well-known names so that everyone can go say, hey, I can go yeah. see Mark Cuban speak here. You know, first of all, if you're going to do that, you're, it, it costs more. Um, yeah. Or if you just get people who, even if you get people who are well-known in the industry, uh, you end up, uh, you know, in order to uh, you know, attract a bigger audience, uh, what it, the, um, you know, the fact that it, it, it that there is no focus on uh, the diversity or the um, or, or or just even different perspectives. You know, it could be people who are doing things who have a different educational background. You know, or like that, or made a transition. Um, you know, by avoiding all of that or, or just not including all of that, there's a whole potential side of the discussion that you're missing. Yeah. So I think folks need to make a bigger push um, to, to get more folks involved in their communities. So reach out, you know, there's, there's tons of groups out there. So reach out, get that, get that big push going. Right. Yeah. Um, Tony, speaking of big pushes, uh, your LinkedIn page. Okay. You, you have a photo of two people tandem skydiving. Now I do. I imagine that one of the men in that photo is you. Uh, are you the are you the student or are you the instructor in that photo? I am the student in that in, in okay. that uh, photo. Um, I do have the video clip also. How did that happen? Well, that was. Um, I imagine it was planned. Right? It was planned. Yeah, okay. it wasn't on a dare. Okay. or a lost bet or anything like that. Uh, it, um, that was my fortieth birthday gift to oh, myself. Um, nice. I'd always wanted to do it. Uh, there was never, uh, and there was 
never really a reason not to do it. Um, but I decided that was my gift to myself. So I went to, I, I found a skydiving place here in New Jersey near the, near the shore area and, um, got up or made my appointment and then got up early in the morning and I went and I did it and I loved it. It was absolutely what I, what I imagined it would be. <laughs> so is that, is, is that something that, something that you are going to do again or have done again? Um, I've have done it about half a dozen times or so. Wow. Since then. Um, I've done it. Be, the, the, um, so you're almost at the point where you could do it by yourself. Now, <laughs> right. I probably, I still probably wouldn't want to do it by myself. <laughs> it's good to know that there's somebody there who could, you know, if something goes wrong, like for example, one time I went in, uh, San Francisco and okay. my goggles flew off. Wow. So, so I had to close my eyes for all of the free fall. I missed the entire free fall because my oh. goggles flew off. So if I were up there by myself and it was the first time that happened, that might have freaked me out a little bit. So it's good to know there's somebody there. It's just like, don't worry, I got you. <laughs> so I was going to ask, like, is there some advice you can give with like, you know, make sure your shoes are tied really tight. But I guess imagine that is either bring up backup pair of goggles or make sure the goggles are on tight. Make sure, make sure the goggles are on really tight. Um, I um, also, I went with uh, my son and I went at the same time. Uh, we did that down in Key West quite a few years ago. Okay. And he's, he, that was his first jump. He was, I believe he was 20 at the time. Uh, it could be a year or two off there. But uh, we did, we did, we both did it over Key West, which was an amazing view. He loved it. He wants to do it again. Um, my daughter was with us at the time and she wasn't 18 yet. So she wanted to do it. Uh, but she still talks about, she's still just like, you know, we got to, we still have to make the plans to do it. We have to do this. We have to do this. I want to do it. And I know that she's really serious about doing it uh, because uh, just a, a funny story that I love to share about her. Sure. Is, uh, we went, when she was, she was less than a year old. We went to the uh, IMAX theater at the Franklin Museum in Philadelphia. And the show happened to be on roller coasters. And I also, I love roller coasters and my son loves roller coasters, right? So we're going in and we're, and my daughter's less than a year old. So she's sitting on my lap and I'm figuring if she gets scared, I'll just cover her eyes and I'll just have to miss the show and kind of walk her out. Right. So we, uh, the show is getting ready to start and the, the, the IMAX 3D theater has the roller coaster going up, 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 doing the slow clink, 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 clink up the hill. It goes over the top and does the first roll down. My daughter leaned forward, eyes wide open and said, whoa. <laughs> That's cool. That's what I said. Yes. <laughs> I'm guessing I'll do it at least one more time with all three of us. <laughs> well, I was, you know, that's, I'm glad you, what's your wife got to say about all of this? I imagine she's, she's maybe not the happiest. She's very happy to just cheer us on from the ground. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. She has no desire whatsoever. And she's like, you go have fun. Just <laughs> okay. Excellent. Excellent. So, so Tony, um, scarier jumping out of an airplane or working for a wall street firm? Uh, they've both got their moments. Uh, I, well, I think each time I've ever gone skydiving, I've been so excited that, um, I didn't find it scary. Uh, the only time the, the, the one instant that is routinely scary is, uh, is basically when you're going up in the airplane, it's making a circle over the airport and you're just going up higher and higher and you're just looking out the window, you know, just like, okay, I'm on an airplane ride. Fine. Yeah. It's a small plane, but no problem. You're going up and then when they say, okay, you're ready, we're ready to go. And the instructor stands you in front of the door and you're still looking out the window and it's exciting and everything. Then he pops the door open and you get hit in the face with that wind. That is when it gets scary. <laughs> and, and, but, I'll, but I'll always say, you know, like with, I've always said, like with everything else in life and with business, uh, the key with skydiving and with business is the, 
the the first step is the most important step. Yep. Just make that first step and then go from there. So yeah, the so that's the only scary instance with skydiving. I think I've had a couple of scary instances on Wall Street where I've had uh, just like had to scramble and um, you know something goes wrong and if it doesn't get fixed in X amount of time, there's you know there are millions of dollars that are going to be lost. Uh, people tend to take that pretty seriously. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, just to add to your first step remark, first step is always important, but preparation. Oh, absolutely, yes. So, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah put Especially, the parachute on. Yeah, there you go. Cure the goggle. Yes. <laughs> uh, Tony, I'd like to go back and I'd like to ask some retrospective questions if you're cool for it. Sure. Okay. All right, Tony, you're a Navy vet. What advice would you like to give other vets with respect to their GI Bill benefits? Well, I've always uh, appreciated, you know, the value that serving in the military provides people as well, and then for them to continue it using their GI Bill to extend their, to continue their education, just helps people to get a, a further advantage uh, I, when I, uh, you know, in, in my article, I've referred to this, you know, where the area where I grew up, um, I grew up in, in, in a very, you know, I'll just say unpleasant area of New Jersey. Um, when I became an adult, or I'll say when I graduated high school, I wasn't sure, you know, I, I was just not prepared for whatever was to come next. Um, I did get uh, admitted to uh, Seton Hall University, but within one semester there, uh, there were a lot, it, you know, there were just so many people from so many different communities and I just felt so in over my head. I, I was not ready for college. Uh, so after the first semester, I withdrew from school and enlisted in the Navy. And uh, uh, I'll say today, it's easily in the top five best decisions I've ever made in my life. That's where I got exposure to a lot of different things, uh, to a lot of different people and things. Uh, plus, I love travel. So uh, I got to do all of the traveling that I wanted to do. I got exposure to a career that I still have to this day. Who knows if I would have even gotten that exposure before. Uh, and then after uh, completing my enlistment in the Navy, I actually thought that I'm ready for college now. You know, I'm, I'm ready to move on to the next step. Uh, that's that's not everyone's experience. There are some who uh, will who you know it's just the, the military may be part of their master plan, but uh, coming out of the the you know, the experience that I got in the military, and then uh, registering in college and going back to college at the time was uh, it was something that that just made a radical difference in my life. And then uh, it turned out that um, I never finished my bachelor's degree because I was about I was about 80 credits into my my, my bachelor's program. I was also used to you know, working full time because I had been in the Navy. So I was working full time during the day and going to school at night. Uh, you asked me about working on Wall Street. Well, my very first job on Wall Street uh, came at the old Shearson Lehman Brothers. Uh, I got a job offer while I was still in college. Uh, the job was so demanding that it just became not possible for me to do both. Right. So, so, uh, so I, but I do credit part of my, uh, my experience in the Navy as preparing me for that. And then going, having to, being able to attend college without necessarily worrying about uh, what it's going to cost or where the money's going to come from or accumulating a lot of debt. And the, and just uh, being able to, to perform at my best uh, with the resources that were provided for me, you know, in return for my service. So I do. Uh, so so that's what I would share with other vets who are getting out. You know, there are there are lots of options. There's the GI Bill, and then there are other career options. There are so many companies that are making the commitment to hire more veterans. Uh, right, but I, I but I think you know just to interrupt. I think. Yeah. The GI Bill benefits, uh, you know, as a t on behalf of all taxpayers, use your GI benefit. Don't don't let it go. Don't you know? 
Because I know there is an expiration date, right? Uh, yes, absolutely. So, yeah, do not let that expire. Use it because you, you you never know. Just find something to use it. Right, and and what you will, what I think you'll be exposed to is the fact that uh, your combination of your military experience with an educational experience will provide will give you a perspective that very few other students in that program will have, or very few other professors will have. Yep. hundred percent. Um, Tony, with all your career experiences, and we just talked about a bunch of them, what advice would you give your younger self? I think the, uh, I've, I've practiced this a lot with my own kids that, uh, where I've said to them, if some, one thing is if somebody expresses confidence in you, believe them. Wow. You know, we, we started by uh, talk, we started this podcast by talking about the imposter syndrome, uh, mm -hmm. or you know it's it's uh, I find it easy to get lost in my own head sometimes. Uh, I think that's part of my creative side. I think that's part of that's a necessary part of who I am. But it can also cause me to to question my own abilities, uh, or or just you know be afraid to take chances sometimes. Uh, so when you meet people and, and I've met, you know, uh, I, I could r rattle off a list of so many people in my career, uh, you know, from that commander who yelled at me in that meeting <laughs> all the way through, you know, our friend who brought us together, you know, people who have exhibited uh, confidence in me, uh, who have uh, reflected a belief in me that. I need to appreciate. And I think to my younger self or to, to many young people, it's important to understand that, you know, people express confidence in you for a reason. And it's not always to, uh, you know, get to take advantage of you or to get over on you or something like that. You can learn how to tell a dis to tell distinct support for who you are. And when you can believe that, when you can take that in and believe that, that just takes you on to the next person who will do the same thing and gives you the ability to share confidence in other people and pass it I, around. I love that. I love that. What's the one thing that you do to escape and clear your mind from writing code or project management or maybe just technology in general? Um, only one thing. Oh. <laughs> well, what's your favorite thing? What's your favorite My thing? My favorite thing is... Um, uh, let's see. Well, my wife and I love to travel. Okay. So we will, to, we will take small trips now. Well, now we, we take small trips. Uh, we have a lot of fun planning travel vacations. Uh, this year, uh, in July, we were supposed to be in Italy. Guess what? <laughs> That's postponed yeah. for a year, but we have planned and, and done other trips to, you know, we've gone to, um, to Amsterdam and to England and Mexico and uh, you know, so where we'll, cool. we'll plan this major trip. So that planning is a lot of fun for me. Uh, but in my day to day life, it, it really comes down to how frequently I meditate. Uh, I, I do meditate daily, uh, sometimes multiple times a day. Uh, I, it, it helps to center me and remind me of uh, who I am and take me away from the distractions of, of all of those things that may or may not matter. It helps me to distinguish from those things that, that may or may not matter. So day to day, it's meditation. Uh, but on the big scale, it's uh, you know, when we plan travel vacations. Excellent. Um, Tony, for folks in our profession, we don't get a whole lot of opportunities to promote ourselves, right? Uh, here's a chance for some self-promotion. Which of your achievements, or one achievement, uh, or, or it could be many, are you most proud of? Or what do you use to inspire confidence in yourself? Um, I do have a couple. Uh, the, the one big one is the one at this point that annoy my kids the most. <laughs> uh, the, uh, the, the one I'm most proud of, because it's the most visible, is the video wall at the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. Okay. I designed the software that feeds the data that appears on that wall. Get out. So, yeah. That's so cool. <laughs> so, when so whenever any business news show is doing a broadcast from the Nasdaq market site, 
Uh, and you see that video wall in the background or they're standing there and they're getting, that was actually the first video wall that did live data feeds. They did it, they, we did it before NBC did it and we did it before Bloomberg did it. Uh, so I designed the video, the data feed that got the, the infrastructure that gets right. those numbers up on the wall at the right time. That's so cool. And that's I mean, why they eat whenever we walk through Times Square and I say, hey, can we go by 43rd or 44th Street and bro? And they're like, yeah, yeah, we know, Dad. We know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to put a link to an image of what that is okay. so people could see what that actually looks like, because um, I used to walk past it all the time working right around the corner from there at Morgan Stanley. Uh -huh. uh, so but that is so cool. And one of the things and this is this is one of the bummers about, you know, researching someone who works for a wall street firm mm -hmm. is that most of the cool stuff that they've done is all confidential yeah. and never, never sees the light of day. Right. Well, well outside of that, outside of certain right. places. Um, exactly. So it's, it's, it's really, there's so many cool people doing so many cool things and you, you know, it's all kind of hidden behind this big wall where it's just like, no, 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 you can't copy what we're doing. And yeah. So, all right, cool. That is so cool. So I'm gonna I'm gonna put a picture of that, a link to the picture of that in the show notes. Um, Tony, I hope you had some fun hanging out today. I did, I did, I enjoyed it a lot. Excellent, excellent. Um, so for folks out there that are interested in hearing more from Tony, you can follow him on LinkedIn uh, at the link in the show notes or on Twitter at at agile underscore Anthony. You can also find more information on how Anthony Software Group can help your business figure out Agile, Scrum, or DevOps by going to anthony-sw.com, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes, uh, or you can email him at info at anthony-sw.com. Thanks again, Tony, and thank you all for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. We're on a bunch of your favorite podcast platforms, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Pocketcast, Anchor, and more. So subscribe on your favorite platforms to Friends That Code and tell your friends because next week we'll be back again with another amazing person that I know that just happens to write code for a living. Until then, be well, everyone.